Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon us. Put that slide back up there, just that last slide, those words. Let's just read those together. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Let's pray together. As you pray, just make those words your prayer as we come to this Lord's table today. Father, we sometimes think that these are words you pray prior to salvation. We sometimes mistakenly think that these are words that lead us into your presence initially. But Lord, this should be our prayer every day. Pre and post Christ in our lives. Lord, have mercy. We fail you. We neglect your truth. We sit by silently while others attack your truth. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Through your cross, you redeemed us. Through your resurrection, you're sanctifying us. It's your work by your Holy Spirit within us. It's not our work for you. It's your work in us. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Even in this hour, as we come to your word and as we come to this table, we cry out, O Lord, for your mercy, for your grace, for your presence, for your power. Thank you, O Lord, for we pray in Jesus, holy, holy holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. As is our practice on Lord's Supper days, we turn to a psalm to think about the glorious, the gloriousness of God, the the beauty of His work. And, And the psalmist is always pointing us to Christ. Don't ever forget that. Even this psalm we're going to look at today is quoted later, and I'll quote it later in the message, but is quoted by Peter and quoted by Paul as being a messianic expression. But I don't think necessarily when David wrote this psalm, he was thinking about, okay, I'm making a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Now, he knew the Messiah was coming, and his psalms certainly point to the Messiah clearly, 
But, but I think to a great degree, David is expressing something here that is in his own life, his own experience with, with God, his own experience with his walk of faith. Basically, this psalm is a personal testimony to the blessedness in the Lord which David enjoys. It's his personal testimony to say, this is what it means for me to walk in the presence of my Lord. It ought to be our expression of faith also as we read these words and think about these words that this expresses my feelings and my heart and my uh, affections, if you will, as we walk in the presence of our Lord, if we are believers, if we are in Christ. And David just kind of unfolds that in, in four stanzas, if you will, through these 11 verses. Hear what he says. You can follow along as I read beginning verse 1. Preserve me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines, of the fall, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night so that my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Shadows of Psalm 62 there. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let the Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever. This is the word of our Lord. The psalmist begins by just talking about his relationship to God. He begins in verses 1 and 2 by simply saying, I take refuge in you, and I say to you, Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Basically, what he's saying there is this. I have set my eyes upon you. I've set my heart upon you. I have found my security in you, and nothing else offers security in my life like you do, O Lord. Nothing else offers security to me. Nothing else could even begin to give me security like you do, O Lord. I have made you my refuge because you are preserving me. You are protecting me. You are my stronghold. Again, it has the ring of Psalm 46, which says, The Lord is my rock and my salvation. He's my refuge, a very present help in time of trouble. David is saying here, I want you to know I have an intimate, real relationship with God, and it's because of His grace and His work and His working within my life. This relationship, he says, extends out not just a vertical relationship with Him 
and God, but a relationship also to the people of God. He said, all the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, and they are the ones in whom I take all my delight. I find my friendships, I find my comrades, I find my fellowship in, in the lives of those who really put their trust in you. Because I know in them I'll be built up. In them I'll be strengthened. They will be a source of, of, of grace to me as your grace flows through their life and as your grace flows through my life and we minister to one another and they are the excellent ones in the land. They are the one to be lifted up. They are the ones to be admired. They are the ones to be looked up to. Not those who refuse to acknowledge the Lord God. We live in a day of celebrity worship. We live in a day when anybody that can get on the internet and, and do something or get on television and do something or get in a movie and do something, they are just fond of over. They are just, it's just like they are the greatest thing there ever was. And, and people want to emulate and people want to talk about them and people want to look at them. And, and, and David is saying here, listen, if their trust is not in the Lord, if their refuge is not in the Lord as mine has to be, then they are not to be looked upon with great admiration. They're to be looked upon with concern. They're to be looked upon as, a, as an object of, of, if you will, in our terminology, in our vernacular day, evangelism and sharing the gospel. But it's those who are the saints in the land. They are the excellent ones, and it is in them that I should take, and I do take, my delight. I wonder if we took a little survey of ourselves, not of the person sitting next to you, not of, the, uh, not of anybody else you're thinking about right now, family member or friend, but if we just took a little survey of our own lives and we were honest with ourselves, we said, who is it that I really, really admire? Who is it that I think is just the, the, the greatest person that ever walked the face of the earth? Who is it that I just really want to know more about and want to look to and want to think about as much as I can? Now, we all have those type people. And then I would ask the second question of the survey, what is their relationship and what is their attitude and, and what do they say in their lifestyle about who God is and how important he is in their life? Because sadly, many times, those that we supposedly look up to, those that we admire, what we find are people who, who have an absolute animosity toward God, an absolute animosity toward His Word, an absolute disdain for what He stands for. They think about themselves, they want to glorify themselves, they want to exalt themselves, and yet we lift them up and we admire them. David says, because you are my Lord, and because I have no good apart from you, because I have found myself to take refuge in you, and you preserve me, you protect me, you care for me every single day, then, then I want you to know it's the excellent ones, it's the saints of the land, it's those who have that same type attitude in whom I will find delight. It's the same thing Paul said in 2 Corinthians. I think it was 7.14. When he said it, you know, that, that we're not to have, be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And we use that a lot of times talking about marriage relationships, not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, not to be tied to in a marriage relationship. And it certainly fits there. But I think, I think 
Paul is talking about, and I know David is talking about here, not just marriage, but also business relationships, also fellowship relationships, deep friendship relationships. We're not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers in such a way that, that we don't have an impact on them. We want to have touches in their lives, but if they become yoked to us and bound to us, Paul says, what, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What fellowship does God have with Baal? There is no fellowship that can be had if God is not the one who is looked to for refuge and looked to for strength. If God is not the one in whom we put our delight together. So David says, here's the the important thing. I will trust in the Lord. I will walk in the Lord. I will look to the Lord because he is everything. It's, you know, we sang that song, all I have is Christ and how true that is. All I have is Christ if I'm a believer. But David says the same thing here. I have no good apart from you, O Lord. You're all I have. So David starts this personal testimony with just talking about his, his relationship to God. Then in verses 3 and 4, he talks about what are the benefits, the immediate benefits of, uh, of that relationship or the immediate results of that relationship. So he says, as for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom I find my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply with drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The immediate result is there is a separation in his life that that says, I will only walk with those who walk with you. I will only uh, have deep fellowship and deep friendship with those who walk with you because there are those who pursue other gods. And, And so the psalmist here takes an immediate shot at idolatry and at false gods. He said, there are those who will pursue after other gods. Now, we've talked about this a lot before. Idolatry does not mean you set a little statue on your mantle and you bow down to that statue at certain times of the day. It does does not mean you go to some kind of shrine and you worship at that shrine. I remember driving through the mountains of of Peru when we were working in the Chancay River Valley. All along the road going up to the villages, you'd see these shrines that had been hewn out in the the side of the mountain on the side of the road. And there'd be a shrine there. And it was placed there for a specific act of worship and a specific act of allegiance or, 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 or loyalty. But those are not the only gods that are in this world. David says, I want you to understand that those who pursue after another god, whether it be Baal, or whether it be the Ashnar, or whether it be themselves, if they pursue after another god, they're, they're going to keep multiplying, and so is their sorrows. So he says, I won't offer sacrifices for them. I won't offer offerings for them. I, I won't pour it out in order to, to say to them that they might be sanctified in what they are doing, nor will I even take their names on my lips. I can't admire those who pursue other gods. So there's this relationship he has that leads to an immediate result of seeing the world as being that which is with God and that which is apart from God, that which acknowledge God and, and in, our, in our case, acknowledge Jesus Christ and those who don't. There's a clear demarcation. There's not a, there's not a synergy there that just kind of ties it all together. Synergy that ties it all together. And then the psalmist talks about the blessings that come from this relationship. In verses 5 through 8, he talks about his present blessings. He, he says there, the Lord 
is my chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. What in the world does he mean by chosen portion and my cup? Well, portion can have several meanings in the Psalms as well as in all the Scripture. Sometimes it talks about uh, property and things that we own and possessions. But by tying it with a cup here, I think basically what the, the psalmist is saying, what David is saying is, the Lord's provided my daily needs. He's provided my daily food. He's, he's provided what I need for my sustenance in every single day of my life. He cares for me. Jesus said in, in his earthly ministry, said even in the Lord's prayer, he said, pray this prayer. Give me this day our daily bread. Not our daily wants, but our daily needs, our daily food, that which we need to grow. And David says here, the Lord is my daily bread. The Lord is my cup. The Lord has given me everything I need in this life. Maybe not everything I would want, but everything that I need. Second blessing of this relationship is you hold my lot. Basically, I think he's saying my, my general circumstances, Lord, are in your hands. No matter what I have or don't have is not mine to worry about or mine to determine. You have determined that and you hold that in your hands. The point he's making here in this blessing is that his security is in whatever God has given. He's not always longing for more. He's not always thinking, what about him over here or her over here that has so much more than I do? He says, Lord, you have you are holding my lot. You have my lot in your hands, and I will find my security. The Lord is defending him, so he will not be downcast. He will not be uprooted. He will not be cast out. The Lord is holding him. The third blessing says, The times have fallen for me in pleasant, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now, this comes more to possessions and to, to the land that he owns, the, the, the boundaries, the lines have fallen in pleasant places. Lord, you have given me a good place. And in that, I find my joy. I have a beautiful inheritance. My inheritance is from you. All I have is Christ. All I need is Christ. Pray that all that I want is Christ in this world. If I have more that God gives me, then I will rejoice in that. But isn't it interesting that the psalmist in all three of those, all of those first three blessings says, listen, I'm content with what God has meted out to me. I'm content with what God has given me in this life. That's an interesting thing to notice when we live in a day that is never content, it seems, with what God has given Never content, never satisfied, never pleased with the way God treats us. We always think, surely, we deserve more. So the Lord has given my daily bread. The Lord has holding my general circumstances, my lot in life. He has given me my boundaries. He has given me pleasant places and beautiful inheritance. And then fourthly, he says this, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. David needed counsel. David was a king. 
He presided over a nation. He needed God's counsel and God's word and God's direction in all of his life. We may not rule over a nation, but we need his counsel for every day ourselves. We need his counsel to direct us and help us and, and, and give us wisdom. The Bible says in James, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God because he gives graciously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. James says, listen, what David is talking about here is yours for the asking. If your refuge is in the Lord, if your relationship is in Christ, if you see the results of your life in him, then he gives counsel. And essentially he says, I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. The idea is there that if we are presenting ourselves to God for his counsel and his word in a continuous sort of way, if we're constantly going before the Lord, if we're constantly in his word, if God has given us his counsel and his wisdom, then at night our heart will continue to instruct us. This is far different from the attitude of today, just follow your heart. This is following a heart that has been instructed by. This is following a heart that has been shaped by. This is following a heart that has been given clear counsel by God. And when that heart is in effect in our life, then even in the night, it will instruct us in the ways of God. Basically, what the psalmist is saying in those verses, in those four present blessings, is listen, God is working in my life, and I will look to him for everything. It says in verse 8, I have set the Lord before me always, always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. That almost refers back to verse 1. There's the, the same idea there. It's almost a, a recommitment here, a renewed commitment here that he expresses before he goes into those last three verses where he said in verse 1, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. And then in verse 8 he says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. I find refuge. And that refuge will protect me, that refuge will counsel me, that refuge will carry me. Because of that, I will not be shaken under any circumstances. You see, when we learn that our commitment and our contentment is in Christ, and we learn that our contentment flows out of that commitment, when we learn and have our contentment in Christ, as Paul said to the Philippian Christians, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself in. I've, I've known riches, and I've known extreme poverty. I've known popularity as a Pharisee, and I've known hatred as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've known what it means to be healthy, and I know what it means to be beaten for my faith. Paul says, but in whatever, whatever state I find myself, in whatever circumstance I find myself, I have learned to be content in Christ. And the implication is there. So should we. David says, I, set, I have set the Lord always before me. I'm always looking to him. 
I'm always gazing upon his face. As Paul said, it's in the face of the Lord that we find our strength to the Corinthian Christians. I've I've set the Lord before me always. It's not a matter of on Sunday, I'll say, Lord, you're before me today, and I'm going to look to you today. And then Monday through Saturday, everything else is before us. But even in the midst of our work, even in the midst of our recreation, even in the midst of where we find ourselves in our home, our face is set upon the Lord, David says. And that's the only sure way to not be shaken. Typically, when people are shaken in their faith, it's because they've taken, they've taken the Lord out of that position of being always before them. If you look at some of the some of the renowned rejections of Christianity that have made the news in the last few months. If you look into their life in depth, you'll find that there came some points where they began to look to other things more than to God for their strength, more than to Christ for their strength. They began to think more highly of themselves than they ought. They began to think that, well, I'm a pretty special person. I'm pretty important. And so I will not trust in the Lord for all this. I'll just trust in myself. And sooner or later, they tumble and they fall. David said, I'll not be shaken because I have set the Lord always before me. And because of that, he talks about the future. He says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices My flesh also dwells secure. I'm secure in this life. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, David says, I've got the present blessings of your presence i've got the present joys of your being with me and and in me and counseling me and providing for me i've got the present joys of knowing that as i set you before my eyes as i gaze upon you and look upon your glory and look upon your i know you're here but there is coming a day david says it'll be even greater My heart's glad, my heart rejoices, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure because of all this. For I know in the future you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Now, Sheol there is not hell. It's in the Hebrew thought, the Sheol was the realm of the dead, the place of the dead prior to the judgment. And so he said, you're not going to abandon me to Sheol. You're not going to leave me there to languish for the rest of my life. You're not going to let your Holy One see corruption. And, and David refers to himself there as God's Holy One. He is a saint. He is a Holy One called of God, set apart by God, just as every saint in this world today is. And I don't mean saints with saint in front of their name. I mean every believer, everyone that's in Christ. He said, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now, of course... This portion of the psalm really takes on a a messianic significance because Peter and Paul both do that in their preaching in the book of Acts. When Peter is preaching on on the day of Pentecost, 
He comes to Acts 2, verses 25 through 28 in that sermon, and, and this is what David says, according to Peter. He says, David says, concerning him, that is Christ, he's talking about the resurrection, he said, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Again, the Greek word. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make, make me full of gladness with your presence. And in the, later on, that same one, in verse 31, he says that David was foreseeing and speaking about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not to be abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. He was looking forward, thinking forward, pointing forward to the resurrection. Now, whether David knew that or not, I don't know. I know that David is saying, I find my security for the future in you. And in doing that, the, the apostles took that and said, this is a beautiful messianic expression that David expressed under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And whether David knew it or not, the Holy Spirit definitely knew it and made that expression in that particular psalm. But I want you to see those last words. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I guess the question as we come to this table today and recognize that this table represents his sacrifice, his body given, his blood spilled in order for us to be able to have eternal life. And eternal life is not just living forever in heaven or living forever. It's eternal life is that quality of life that is what he's talking about here. Your presence, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are the pleasures evermore. Your pleasures evermore. I have to ask ourselves this question. Where are our pleasures? Where is our joy? Even where are our disappointments? You know, what do, we, what do we find our greatest pleasure in? Is it in worshiping Him? Is it, is, no, is it knowing that we're at His right hand? That we're there in His presence, seated in the heavenly places already in Christ? Is His presence our joy? Is it... Is our joy filled when we know that we're worshiping in the presence of the Lord with his people? Or is our joy found in something else? That's a tough question to ask. That's a very important question to ask. Because David says when one finds their joy, their pleasure, their everything in Christ. When they can sing as we did this morning, when you can sing, all I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. When we sing like we did this morning, the words of Paul that says, you know, I just want, I want to make him my everything. I want him to be, I, I, want, I want to see myself and for others to see in my life that, that without Christ, I'm nothing. 
come to this table, we have to ask that question. Has this sacrifice that we are commemorating and this second coming that we are looking forward to, has it so changed our life that that's where we find our pleasure and joy? What he has done and what he is going to do. His first coming for salvation and for sacrifice, his second coming in judgment. I don't often quote memes in my sermons, but I saw one this week that kind of got my attention. Kind of, to be honest with you, it kind of hurt a little bit. It went something like this. Probably not a direct quote, but said, I think it was a Floridian that posted it, that said, you know, when the Weather Bureau says a hurricane is coming. We get all panicky and run out and get prepared and get all the food and all the water we can and store it up. We just show great concern because the weatherman says a hurricane is coming. But when we say Jesus is coming, we just kind of yawn and go on with life as it is. The fact that Jesus is coming is far more certain and far more significant and far more critical than even a direct hit by a hurricane. So we come to this table to remember. We come to this table to proclaim that Christ is dead, buried, and risen and coming again. Pray with me, would you? As our deacons prepare to serve this meal. Father, we who are in you live a sheltered life. And that's not negative. That's a great truth. We are sheltered under your hands. We are sheltered under your protection. That's all because of the cross. That's all because of your Holy Spirit's work in our life to show us Christ. Give us life as we've trusted in you. Father, I pray this morning as we come to this table that your Holy Spirit will remind us and convict us and strengthen us and help us look forward. Father, we thank you for rejoicing in the ordinance of baptism at the start of this service. And now we close with the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion. The two things you told us to do until you come. Baptize in your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And do this in remembrance of your sacrifice and your coming. The only two things you told us to always do exactly like that. So, Father, we come to remember. 
work in our lives, O Lord, your work of grace. Have mercy, O Lord. Have mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You continue to pray as we prepare the table. Thank you.